How do you greet people? What do you say to people when you greet them? You say hello? You say howdy? Do you say yo? Do you say aloha? Do you say bonjour? Do you say guten tag? Do you say privet? Did I say that right? Did I get it right, Anessa? Privet? I got close. You say ni hao. Do you say g'day? How do you greet people? What do you say to people when you see them? There's a greeting in Tibet that goes back all the way to the ninth century. Back then, there was a, a vicious king named Langdharma. And the legend goes that Langdharma had a black tongue. And that after his death, there was this fear that he would be reincarnated from the dead. Or that he had already been reincarnated from the dead. And so the legend is that back during that time, people to make sure that you could prove that you weren't the vicious Langdharma, you would stick your tongue out at people as a greeting. My mom will listen to this sermon tomorrow and go, I can't believe you used a stuck-out tongue in your sermon. But this is the pattern. This is what they would do. They wanted to prove they were not Langdharma. It's reported this greeting is still being used today. Now, I would encourage you, I probably would not use this greeting with a police officer. I probably would not use this greeting with your teacher at school. Matter of fact, you probably just don't want to use this greeting with anybody unless you go to Tibet and maybe it'll be okay for you to greet somebody by sticking your tongue out. There's a lot of different ways that we say hello to one another. There's a lot of different greetings that are out there in the world. Some greetings are just casual. They don't have a whole lot of meaning to them. They're just a a way to greet somebody. But in some cultures, there are certain greetings that carry a lot more meaning than others. And one of those greetings is something we're going to look at this morning. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to his friend Titus and some other Christians on the island of Crete. He was writing them a letter, and in his greeting, he gave them a greeting that was more than just saying hello. It was a greeting that had some weight, some greeting that had some importance to it. He didn't just say, what's up to Titus? He didn't stick out his literary tongue at Titus. But he did give something that matters in this simple greeting. And it wasn't just for Titus. And it wasn't just for the people there at the church at the island of Crete. Paul's greeting still has heavy weight for me and for you this morning. Look with me at Titus 1, beginning with verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Titus. Not a whole lot there. But what we do know, we can kind of find out in in one sentence. In Paul's second letter that he wrote the church at Corinth, this is what he wrote about Titus. He said, Titus is a guy who has the same spirit as me and does things and walks in the same way that I walk. Don't miss that. This is possibly, arguably, the greatest Christian who has ever lived on the planet. And he says, Titus does things just like I do things. So how did Paul do things? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he writes, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is how Paul did things. There was one agenda. There was always one agenda, and that agenda was Jesus Christ. No matter where he went, no matter where he was going, his agenda was to bring attention to Jesus. And Paul went a lot of places. He went all over the known world at the time. So he packed light. 
He didn't, he didn't keep a lot in his bag. He was always ready to go at a moment's notice. Now, does that mean that we should not buy a house? We should not settle down? We should not you know, live in a neighborhood? We should always keep a backpack and ready to go wherever God wants us to go? Well, not necessarily. But it does mean this. If you are a Christian, your hometown is not your home. If you are a believer, your hometown is not your home. God may temporarily or permanently call you to leave the house you live in right now to go and live in another city or another neighborhood or another state or another country. That's what he did in my life six months ago, right? God may call you to to leave where you are right now and to go to another place, and not just with a job transfer. You see, when Paul was going from place to place, he was going for the very purpose of taking Jesus into that place. I've met about 10 or 15 families over the last two or three years who have quit their jobs in South Carolina, and they have moved to other places in our country for the sole purpose of starting a church. These were not pastors. These were not church staff. These were just faithful church members who quit their jobs. They moved to a new city. They got new jobs. They bought a new house in a certain area for the sole purpose of going there to make much of Jesus. Statistics show us that from 1776 to 1916, the number of people attending church went from 17% to 53%. Don't miss that last part. By the early 1900s, by 1916, more than half of the people in America were churchgoers. They were attending church. Somewhere, somehow, in some community. Why? Well, because 1800 to 1900 in our country, we had a a huge population boom. And so the churches were starting to keep up with the population. Today, statistics show that about 18% of the people in our country are attending church on Sunday mornings. So today, we're about the same percentage as things were in 1776. So we've gone back 240 years almost, and not for the better. So what's happened? One church planting ministry puts it this way. Church historians have noted that after World War I, church planting in the U.S. plummeted. Towns across the country had their church, and they felt no need for additional ones. Turf wars began. There was resistance from older congregations to any new churches beginning in their neighborhood. Unfortunately, the vast number of congregations peaked in size in the first 25 years. They either remained at that size or they slowly began to shrink. So as time passed, the American population continued to grow while church planting stalled and current congregations Shrank. Not in the last 10 years after World War I. So the population of our country continues to grow, but we as the church have not kept up. We haven't kept up with the growth of our population. If you look at our country, all over our country, there are, are country clubs all over our nation. And these country clubs, they exist to care for and to protect the personal preferences of the members there at the club. Some of these clubs have signs out front that say Baptists and Methodists and Lutheran and Presbyterian. see, See, we have become a country club in a culture where we need to be giving Jesus to the world. 
The population has grown, but, but the church has not kept up. We have lagged behind. It's not something new. It's something that's been going on for a while. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We always go back to the basics. We always go back to the beginning. And here's the beginning. I'm saved. The beginning is, I have joy in my salvation. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound, is still sweet. That I'm excited about what it means to be saved. I'm astounded that God would save a wretch like me. And I start there. And if I can start there, there's a whole lot God can do with me. Because then I'm reminded that that God's called me to be the kind of person and that God's called you to be the kind of person that takes light into a dark world, that speaks life into people who feel like their lives are dead and nothing's happening. You see, the joy of our salvation is what's supposed to motivate us to keep up with the culture, to keep up with giving the gospel to the culture. You see, God's called us as believers to to take the gospel next door. He's called it to take it in our home first, and then next door, and, and then to work and to school to the church, to the ballpark, to the stadium. He's called us to take the gospel to Guatemala, to Moldova, to South Africa, and even more uttermost parts of the world. God has called us to have joy in our salvation, to take that joy to other places. God is doing a great work at Holland Avenue Baptist Church. He is in, in his grace, he's allowing us in this season to be one of those churches that's changing the statistics. Praise God. Let's ask God to, to keep helping us be exactly that. One of those places changing that 18%. One of those places giving the gospel to our community, giving the gospel to our world, giving the gospel to each other. May we be a church that keeps making a big deal about Jesus in our homes, that keeps making much of Jesus in our community, that keeps making much of Jesus with with other churches. Let us encourage other churches. Let us partner with new churches so that we can be a part of God's work in the gospel. What a great privilege we have to be a Christian. But you know what? Being a Christian is not just in this room. God has called us to be a part of of his work around the world, his work in the church. So a quick question for us with all that said, how available are you to God? How available are you this morning to God? Paul was available. He, he determined more than anything else to make a big deal out of Jesus everywhere he went. He always stayed ready to go anywhere God wanted him to go, and he loved the church. Paul loved the church. Stephen Cole writes this, The ministry is not something you do for eight hours a day and then leave it at the office. It is a a 24-hour-a-day commitment of emotional investment in people. The phone calls, the text messages, the emails that pastors receive are, are rarely great news. They're usually the tough, hard things in life. But that's what makes the gospel so great. You see, my primary job is to help people see they don't need me. My primary job is to help people see and find and know this great treasure, this beautiful salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most satisfying reality in the universe. 
for the darkness, for the hurt, for the deadness, we have Jesus. Paul spent his life going all over the world, starting churches, encouraging churches, and challenging churches. He made it his commitment to love the church. We could say that Paul is a charter member of Holland Avenue Baptist Church. In fact, we could say Paul is a charter member of every single church in the world. Because in some ways, it is very possible this church would not exist without the Apostle Paul. Because see, the gospel would have never made it across the ocean if Paul didn't love making a big deal out of Jesus. And if Paul didn't love the church. We have the honor of being connected to the gospel. And we have the honor of remembering the gospel is not supposed to be lived out by ourselves. See, Paul knew the gospel was not something you could go out in the desert and, desert and hang out in a tent burn some some incense candles and just love Jesus. That's not what it means to be a Christian. See, Paul knew that that the gospel and Christianity, it it was designed to be done together. It was designed to be done in real life with real people. And so he writes to the church and he says, I want you to know this is what life is about. You need to make a big deal out of Jesus. You need to be available to God and you need to love the church. And we could probably say a lot more about how Paul functioned, but that's a a pretty good summary. And then Paul says what? Paul says, Titus is just like me in these things. Think about that. That means that Titus loved making a big deal out of Jesus. It means that Titus was always ready and available to God. And it means that Titus loved the church. So, another heart question for us. Do we see Paul and Titus in our own lives? How much are we committed to making a big deal out of Jesus? How much are we committed to being available to God? How much are we committed to the church? How much do we love the church that Jesus created? Look what Paul says again about Titus. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Nobody looks at my son and then says to me, yeah, there's no way that's your kid. Meaning, people have been telling him for years he looks just like me. Bless his little heart. I'm hoping at least later on he'll be able to keep more hair than I've been able to keep. But that never happens. People even have been calling him Little Dow in the past few years. You see, you wouldn't walk up to Titus and see him standing next to Paul and go, man, you guys, y'all look just like one another. You wouldn't. But you might do this. You might walk up and say, you know what, Titus, you act just like Paul. See, Paul considered Titus a part of his spiritual family. He calls him his child. Paul may have been the first person to introduce Titus to Jesus. We don't know. But he had a significant impact in his life. He helped Titus see that the greatest thing in the universe was knowing Jesus. There was nothing greater. Paul would have been sitting with the family at Titus's graduation. And when he walked across the stage, he would have said, You're my boy, Titus. You're my boy. He was committed to Titus. Titus was his child, his son, his brother, his friend. You see, my youngest son, he looks like me, but he's part of my family genetically. He's part of my family legally. He's part of my family practically. Titus was part of Paul's family spiritually. They they had a common faith. And their common faith was not just a general faith. It was a saving faith. What is saving 
faith. We've seen this verse several times in the last few months. Paul writes very simply the gospel out this way. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, saving faith is not just believing those as facts. Saving faith is not just believing that as information. Saving faith is taking the truth about Jesus and embracing those facts. Taking the truth about Jesus and committing your life to those facts. Committing your family and your marriage and your kids and your grandkids and your job and your education and your free time and your vacation. All of this committed to the person of those facts. You see, when I stood in front of Central Baptist Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and married my wife, I made a commitment to her, and she made a commitment to me. We didn't stand in front of that mess of people and make a general commitment to the idea of marriage. We made a commitment to one another. Covenant marriage is a commitment to a specific person. It's not just a general idea of being wed. It is being wed to that man and that This is how Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. This is the the thrust of Jesus' message. You You need to come and follow me. See, if we call you to follow after Jesus Christ, as we call you this morning to be a Christian, we are not primarily calling you to a religion or denomination or to a church or to a specific religious leader. We are calling you to Jesus Christ. Christ. The commitment to follow after Jesus is to him. To call yourself a Christian is to say this, I am going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to rely on Jesus. I'm going to cling to Jesus. I'm going to say I have no hope if I don't have Jesus. Christianity means looking at the guilt drenched penalty of your sin being erased by God through his son and you look at that and you say I believe that I believe that is true God have mercy on me God forgive me God give me Jesus because if you don't give me Jesus I will die and I'll die forever and ever and ever you know you don't say things like that and then you know go get a milkshake You know, you you don't make a commitment to Jesus Christ and just, ah, you know, I'll get back to him next Sunday. No, the call to follow after Jesus is powerful. It demands our heart, our soul, and our minds. Ron Daniel puts it this way. Saving faith is not just saying faith. See, Paul and Titus, they didn't have a saying faith in common. They had a saving faith in common. Their commitment to Jesus Christ defined who they were. It was Jesus that brought them together, and it was Jesus that kept them together. You know, I go up to meet people. I don't introduce myself and say, hey, I'm a Gemini, and my name is Dow. I don't say, hey, I'm a pastor, and my name is Dow. I don't say, hey, I'm a Baptist, and my name is Dow. That's not how I greet people. You know, I just say, hey, my name's Dow. What's your name? With this greeting, what Paul is trying to get across to Titus and the other folks, including me and you, is this. The most important title, position, the most important name in your life 
is the name of Jesus. There is no greater name in your life than Jesus. Paul said this to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. Imagine if I closed the service today with a prayer like this. God, thank you so much that I'm white. God, thank you so much that I'm not a foreigner. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. And God, I especially thank you that I'm not a woman. I go over real well on Mother's Day, right? You know, it sounds shocking, but those are the exact kind of prayers that you might hear in the synagogue during the time of Jesus and during the time of Paul and Titus. There would be people that would stand up in the middle of a room and say, Oh, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those Gentiles. I'm so glad I'm not like my neighbors who don't know you. If there is any place on the earth where gender and social status and race and all the other things that make us unique should take a back seat, it is in the church that Jesus created. Of all places, Jesus should be first and most. Why? Because of Jesus. Romans 6, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall so-so, maybe average, maybe a few feet. No, just short of the glory of God. You know what I have in common with an African-American man? You know what I have in common with an Asian-American woman? You know what I have in common with an illegal immigrant? You know what I have in common with a practicing witch? You know what I have in common with an outspoken atheist? You know what I have in common with a Middle Eastern terrorist? We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all dead in our sin. We are all without hope in this universe unless we have Jesus. So, any good news here? No, it's not good. It's great news. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, just like every other human being in the world, I was dead in my sin, but God brought me to life. I did not bring myself to life. God, through Jesus Christ, gave me life. And now, because of the life I have in Christ, the name above all names in my life is Jesus. The most important title, the most important position, the most important thing in my life is this sentence, I am in Christ. That's the best sentence in my life. Because I'm in Christ, it reminds me of a number of things. You see, there is no race and there is no gender and there is no social status at the cross. There are no Republicans and Democrats at the cross. There's no tigers and gamecocks at the cross. There's no rich or poor. There's no senior adults or teenagers. There's no church members or pastors. We are all before the cross and we are all dead and we're all in need of life. And God, because of his great love for you, if you don't feel loved, 
If you're at outs with your parents, if you're at outs with your kids, if your boss hates you, if you hate school, if your boyfriend and girlfriend are in a fight, if you're in an argument with somebody who's a Christian, no matter where you're not feeling love this morning, God loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to bring you life. And that is incredible, astounding news. God, out of his great love, out of his great mercy, he causes us to be alive in Jesus. And once we're alive in Jesus, Jesus is everything. See, there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We are all a part of the family of God. That is how he designed it. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? You see, the way God designed for things to happen among the family of God and the church is that, is that we would have Jesus in common, and that would trump everything else. But quite honestly, we know that that doesn't always trump everything else. Sometimes there's cliques, and sometimes there's factions, and there's little fights over this personal preference or that personal preference, and sometimes it's the young people, and sometimes it's the old people, and sometimes it's the staff, and sometimes it's the members, and sometimes it's people that don't even come to church. But we find ourselves in these conflicts and we forget, wait, we have Jesus. Wait, God in his rich mercy saved us. So this issue is no longer an issue because now we have Jesus. I love the example that Jesus gave us with this, with the woman at the well. Philip Ryken puts it this way. She was a poor Samaritan woman. So Jesus was separated from her ethnically, socially, and sexually. I love that. He, he had absolutely nothing in common with this woman. Absolutely nothing. But then Riken says, but that did not stop Jesus from loving her and dying for her sins. Jesus looked and he loved. And he has called us to do the exact same thing. Why? Look at the last part of the greeting. Paul writes to Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Two great words here, grace. Grace is undeserved favor from God. If you're a believer, we have grace in common. There's absolutely nothing that we have that we deserve. None of the mercy and forgiveness of God is something that we deserve. We have it only because of Jesus. And peace, peace means being separated from something, but now you've been brought back together. We know what it means to be separated from somebody we love, right? Well, Jesus causes peace to happen between us and God. Jesus makes us right with God and gives us everlasting joy. Not just joy to last Sunday. Not just joy to last for the summer or for Christmas or for Easter, but joy that lasts forever. Peace that lasts forever. You see, the common denominator is Jesus, period. Paul wanted to be sure he got that across. Titus, whatever fights and arguments you may have at the church, whatever me and you may disagree on, whatever problems we may have in life, whatever stress we may have in life, the common denominator, the thing that we need to come back to over and over and over again is Jesus. This is what we have together. Susanna Bell died on March 13, 1672. Thomas Brooks, a minister, wrote a letter to her children. This is just part of what he put in the letter about this mom. Christ was her chief good. Christ lay near your mother's heart, and oh, that he may be near all your hearts, so that you may be safe and saved forever.
That's a pretty powerful reputation for a mom, right? I think we could say about Susanna Bell that she had some Paul and Titus in her. She understood this concept of Jesus Christ being her greatest treasure in the universe. And even after her death, it was clear, it was seen that Jesus was her chief good. One more last heart question. Is Jesus Christ your chief good? Is Jesus your chief good? I pray that he is so that you'll be satisfied so that you'll be safe, and so that you will be saved, not just today, but forever and ever and ever. Let's pray.